Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Wednesday, June 22nd, 2022. And today will be better than yesterday. Today is not the hearing date for Aaron Judge's arbitration. That happens on Friday. And before we move forward, I want to just say happy birthday to my son, Jake, who can officially vote now. He turned 18 on Tuesday. The Braves could make him really happy uh, today and every day if they were to win every single day. Producing from his home studio, his new home studio in the foothills of Connecticut is Taylor Schwenk. I'm Buster only working from my home in New York. What a game in Anaheim last night. The Royals, the Angels. Bobby Witt Jr. had himself a huge night. And it's hit in the air. Right center field and deep. Trout is at the wall and no ruling yet. They're going to call it a home run. Absolutely. Second base umpire Andy Fletcher Took a look at it. The Angels will probably want to review and see if there was fan interference. But for now, it's Bobby Wood Jr.'s ninth home run of the year. Well hit center field. Trout goes back, all the way back, and it's gone. Bobby Wood Jr. has driven in four tonight with his second home run of the night. And the Royals will take a three-run lead at least into the bottom of the ninth. (laughs) But Shohei Otani had even a bigger game. When the Angels were down to their last strike, this is what happened. Here's the 2-2. Shohei swings and hits a ball high. He hits it deep. It is showtime once again. Oh, goodness, was that ball hit. Otani tonight here at the Big A is put on a show. Two homers and seven runs batted in, and that one just tied up the ball game in the bottom of the ninth. It's 10-10. Kerry Smith on Angels Radio. Yes, Shohei Otani, two home runs, eight RBI. Typical Angels, it wasn't enough. This is the Royals in extra innings. Here's the pitch. Witt lines it to right, and that is going to be a base hit. Lopez will come in to score. Merrifield will stop at second base with an RBI double, and the Royals take an 11-10 lead. Final score there was 12-10. Steve Fiziak on that call on Royals Radio Network. White Sox, Blue Jays. Josh Harrison was at the plate in the bottom of the 12th inning. The 1-2. That's a base hit out in the center. Jose around third. He's going to score. White Sox win. Josh Harrison in the 12th wins it. 7-6 the final. That was Len Casper on ESPN 1000. A good friend of his is Boog Shambi, the voice of the Cubs who took over for Len on television. We'll be talking with Boog coming up here in a bit. Guardians and the Twins, top of the 11th inning. It was five all, and then this happened. He lets it rip. Jimenez sends a little blooper into center field. Base hit. Guardians will take the lead. How about that? They pitched to Andres Jimenez. They pay the ultimate price. And Cleveland has the lead here in the 11th inning, 6-5. to five. And they would hold that lead. That was Tom Hamilton on WTAM 1100 at the end of the night. The Guardians actually in first place in the American League Central by percentage points. They've got a 35 and 28 record. The Twins, 38 and 31. The White Sox, despite all their injuries, all the issues they've had, they're only three and a half games behind the front running Cleveland Guardians. 
The ones who get it done is brought to you by Granger. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry backed by 24-7 support and access to product specialists. Call, click Granger.com or stop by. Big game for the Cardinals last night from a rookie, Nolan Gorman. Swing and a hard hit ball to center field. And that ball is gone. Off the batter's eye and straight away center field. And there's some sick power for you. Home run number five for Nolan Gorman. And the Cardinals take the lead three to two. Next delivery from Sanchez is hit high in the air to deep right field. That is gone. Second home run of the game for Nolan Gorman. A solo shot leading off the seventh inning. And the Cardinals lead four to two. Have a day, Nolan Gorman. That was the voice of Ricky Horton on the Cardinals radio network. St. Louis wins six to two, but Jack Flaherty had a really rough outing. Shambi will be by to talk about the implications of that. The Giants and the Braves, this was a back-and-forth slugfest, and it was a former Brave who did a, got a big hit in the top of the eighth inning. A one to Peterson. He swings and drives a high fly ball deep right center field. On the move, Harris going back. He leaps. It's gone. Jock Peterson in his return here to Atlanta launches a home run to right center. For Peterson, his 15th of the year, and the Giants now lead 9-7. That from KNBR, the Giants win the game 12-10. The Rays the other day got crushing injuries. Manny Margot, Kevin Kiermaier went down. Uh, The Rays will be without those two guys for a long time. They played the Yankees last night, and one player stepped up big for Tampa Bay. 2-2 pitch, driven in the air to left field again. Gonzalez going back at the wall. It's gone! A two-homer day for Isak Paredes. And he's given the Rays a 3-2 lead here in the third. Here is Paredes already with two homers and sends one way up into the air into left, but did he get enough? Gonzalez back, back to the wall. Gone! Number three tonight for Isak Paredes, and the Rays have a 5-2 lead. My goodness! Yeah, he was almost the entire Rays offense in their 5-4 win. That sound from 620 WDAE. Taylor, what else you got? Buster, I had the privilege this morning of hosting Baldman on campus with Seth Greenberg. We previewed the NBA draft. That'll be up a little bit after this podcast. If you're listening to this right now, it might already be in your feed. So check out Baldman on campus with Seth Greenberg. Normally, Jay Billis, he's covering the draft on ESPN tomorrow night. That's Thursday at 8 p.m. on ESPN and ABC. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11 ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with Code Baseball. That's Code Baseball. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, 
and pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. The man. Swing and a high fly ball out towards left field. The voice. That one well struck. The legend. On its way. Out of here. Chiambi on baseball tonight. And this place is going Book. I mean, if you get any sounder where you're called a legend, that has to be good, right? It makes me giggle pretty much every time. Much every time. <laughs> How are you doing? Book uh radio play-by-play man for ESPN, TV voice of Chicago Cubs on Marquee. Uh, what's going on with you? I, I get to see you every weekend, but I never really get to talk to you. I know. We don't. We don't get to talk like the way the way we used to. No, everything's good. Just bouncing around right now. You know, Cubs are struggling. Got a chance to watch uh, the Astros and the White Sox on Sunday in person, and we saw each other. And um, you know, Houston, an interesting team. I, I I don't know that nationally people recognize what a great run prevention team they are, but they've been they've been pretty impressive. I mean, they've allowed I think the fourth fewest runs in the majors at least as of a couple of days ago. So they've they've been pretty impressive. Okay, since you were in the room, I wasn't planning on talking about this, but the, since you were in the room for those meetings we had with the two managers uh, before the game, actually in the dugout with Tony Larusa, I thought it was cool to hear the story about how Dusty and Tony have had this thaw in their relationship. I had talked to Tim a little bit about it the other day, but what about you? What do you think about these two guys now in their 70s, sort of, sort of moving toward each other a little bit? I love that. I mean, look, I'll give – you asked the question and I just, I thought Dusty's part of it was, I mean, he, he, he very efficiently gave kind of the arc of the storyline from when they first, first started together, Tony made the team ahead of Dusty and then Dusty played for Tony right at the very end. And then, you know, the way they butted heads when they were, going against each other in the central. And then it kind of got a little dark between the two of them. And then, you know, Dusty talking about the the letter that Tony wrote, which I thought was, was really cool. And, and then talking about, I mean, I felt like it was really implicit <clears throat> the way Dusty told the story about going to, to Bob Welsh's funeral and just sort of the, the undertones of, what are we doing here? These are two people that have competed against one another. There's a very clear respect for one another and the connection that people who played the game have together is really powerful. And Dusty's wife saying, come on, you know, like let's, let's reach out. And, and so they end up having a phone call and I, I, yeah, it was, it was cool. And then to, to hear Tony talk about it was also, um, the two guys have been battling for a long time, and I hope Dusty gets into the Hall of Fame. 
Yeah, and it was neat that uh, their their longtime friend, teammate, Bob Welch, brought them together in an odd way, as yeah. Dusty described it, <laughs> at uh, you know at Bob's uh, at Bob's funeral. Yes, they brought and them together. A, a mutual, you know, friend saying, "Look," uh, said to Dusty, "Look, Tony wants to talk to you." And then it turns out they're standing next to each other at the urinal, which means that there's nowhere they can go in that situation. No place to go. <laughs> oh gosh. Dust, I mean, just Dusty sharing that story like only Dusty can. So he's a magnificent storyteller, and uh, it was it was nice to catch up with him. Just one of the one of the really cool guys to uh, to chat with in the game. Yeah, Tony uh, punctuating his comments to us by saying that Dusty Baker should be a Hall of Famer. Uh, that'll happen sometime. These are two of the oldest people in the sport. One of the youngest guys is O'Neill Cruz the shortstop for the Pittsburgh Pirates who's catching everybody's eye with what he's doing in his early days. You got to see him play the other night. What'd you say? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of the, it was one of those instances where you hear about the tools and then you immediately see the tools. So he goes and his first hit was the hardest ball of any pirate had hit this year. Pause for a second. He hit a ball in the minors this year, 122 miles an hour, which is harder than any big leaguers hit a ball. His sprint speed on a ball where he tried to stretch a double into a triple was faster than any pirate so far this year. And then on a regular ground ball, he threw a ball to first harder than any infielder has thrown a ball this season. So, and then I got down on the field, got a chance to watch him take batting practice and just see him up close. And, you know, again, he, so he was at first base last night and Alfonso Rivas is playing first base for the, for the Cubs. And for a first baseman, he's smallish, but he's he's Alfonso Rivas is basically average size male. He's about 5'10, probably 185 pounds. And you're, it it was like it was it had a feel of Aaron Judge and Jose Altuve at second base in terms of how big Cruz is. Obviously, Cruz is, you know, sort of ganglier, longer than than Judge, and I'm sure he'll fill out some, but all the tools were on display, Buster. So tell me if, if the natural comparison, I think uh, everyone's making it the initial part, uh, initial stages of his career are accurate. And that would be to Fernando Tatis Jr. I think so. But he, he's just he's even longer, you know. Um, but yes, that's yes. It, it's funny because somebody in the Cubs clubhouse <clears throat> said exactly that. And I'm sure I think it would be hard for a player of that body type to sustain playing every day at shortstop. I think I'm interested to see how they play because down in the minors, they were playing him in the outfield. Some I, I would editorially say, you look at the Padres, what have the pot? What's, you know, when you look at what the Padres strengths have been this year, defense, they've been elite level defense. So whatever you think about Hassan Kim, he's a superior defender at short to Fernando Tatis. So, I mean, not look, not to take it to negative town, they need Tatis back because they need that, bat but i would think hard about putting him in the outfield personally yeah i agree with you i brought this up last week and the fact that they have bob melvin now as manager uh puts a completely puts a different context on it you know where uh, i think in the past uh, let's face it a lot of the strings were pulled by the front office i think bob is going to do what he thinks is right for the big league team i would totally agree and i think it it also is kind of the way you started all of this talking about bob Bob's as respected a manager as there is in the game. I mean, you know, you you make a a conversation who's the best manager in the game and somebody says Bob Melvin, 
my response is, okay. You know what I mean? So uh, people are bought in. And when Bob makes a decision, I think the, that the players are, are confident. I will say for the game, I, I do want to say this. For the game, I think you and I have these types of conversations. It's way more fun if Tatis and Cruz stay at shortstop. Yeah, it's way, it's way more when you're at a premier position like that. It's way it's way more cool when they're at that position specific for those teams. What's best? I think probably, you know, sometime at short, but mainly in another spot, just because, you know, the, the hit tool is the thing that that carries them. All right. You and I argue a lot. Me and you? I will say I listen what? to what you say. OK, Boog. And, and last week I was talking about we had that. uh that game in which we had two immaculate innings in the same game. And I was kind of like, yeah, you know what? I'm thinking of my friend, Boog Shambi, kind of shrugging my shoulders a little bit, feeling like it's a, a bit like the cycle, shrugging my shoulders, saying, yeah, you know, it, it's it's just a weird sequence. It's not like it's something special. You know, is striking out a side of nine pitches really that much different than striking out 10? Did I get your, your mindset right, or was I completely off base? I mean, yeah, I think – to me, then I probably the immaculate inning. There, there is an element of just straight domination, but I, I do think the cycle is being sort of quirky. Don't misunderstand me. Like you go single, double, triple, homer in a game, it's amazing. But there's a sequencing part of it that's sort of random that like I don't really care about. And if you're asking me, be, you know, as clinically, yeah, I'd rather you go single, double, and two homers than a triple and a homer because that's a better game. I, I would, by the way, speaking to Tony LaRussa, I, I like I said it on the air one time and Tony was listening. And when he was an advisor to the Red Sox, he walked into the clubhouse one day. I was sitting with Alex Cora and he literally just walks right in the middle of just me and AC talking. And he goes, I heard you on the air say one of the dumbest things I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> you think the cycle is stupid. And it was so, I mean, he basically browbeat me for like five minutes and I, it, I was so there to take it. It was, it was, it was great. So um, yeah, Tony, Tony's a big fan of the cycle, but yes, you, 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 you nailed my point. I mean, look, I, I appreciate greatness. I don't want to dismiss greatness. I, I, I never, it's, it's to me, I don't want to try and equate the quirkiness of something necessarily to making it, you know, elite performance. I think that there's some randomness to it, but the Immaculate Inning's pretty cool and pretty, you know, there haven't been, it's rare, you know, it's unique. Knowing how much you love the sport, uh, I was thinking about your perspective uh, in watching some of the Cubs games this year, because there've been some blowouts and we've yeah. seen position players pitching. Uh, and I got to thinking about uh, the perspective on that and how it's different publicly than it is privately. And it reminds me a lot of the conversation around extra innings. You know, fans, after the fact, love to talk about yeah, that 18-inning game that I attended in Wrigley Field between the Yankees and the Cubs, or that 20-inning game that I saw years ago. Boy, wasn't that great. You know, that amazing uh, game we had between the Braves and the Mets with the 4th of July fireworks. Everyone loves those. But beneath the surface, folks in baseball – can't stand those games, which is why in the end there was an adjustment. And I kind of wonder if the same thing's going on with all these position players pitching, because the fans look at it and say, oh, that's fun when Brett Phillips, you know, flips in the 39 mile, mile an hour pitch. Uh, and for one day, players can laugh about it. But day after day after day, I, I kind of feel like folks in front offices are getting sick of it. 
Yeah. And the other thing too, that's happening that that's showing you, you know, it used to be more unique and now it's just the epitome of non-competitive because I don't know whether you saw the tweet from Codify the other day, but it tracked the average velo from a, a pitcher pitching. And over the last few years, it's gone from, you know, in 2003, averaging 84 miles an hour to this year, the, the average position player pitching is lobbing it in at 60 something miles an hour. Wow. So it's changed. I would also look, I understand fans pay it's entertainment, but I would also say this. I mean, we had a game on Sunday night when a position player pitched for both sides and it's happened this year in other games. When that happens, the game is over. The competition has ceased. It is baseball's version of taking a knee or running out the clock. Like that's what these teams are doing. And that's no good. Like I get it. You're in the park and it's fun and it's funny because you might only, you know, you might have traveled for a long and I for a long distance to come see that game. And I get it. Um, but man, it's 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 not the purpose of what we're there to watch or we're there to watch a competition and the competition has ended. So what rule would you propose in terms I'm of not uh, sure you, know, if you how, had some kind of a mercy rule? What uh, what number would that be? I mean, I'd say like seven after the seventh, something like that. I, I do think this that. You could. You also would have the the ability for a pretty cool walk off in a mercy rule type of setting. I, I think that there's also this. There's this intersection. Like I personally think, like I'm someone that's totally open to to changing my mind and ideas based on the setting. But part of the reason why I'm kind of in on this too is I think they made a mistake going back to 13 pitchers. Like 13, you're only going to see more of this stuff right now. Like yeah. I just don't think based on short spring training and the way bullpens are used, I don't think 13 pitchers is going to work. I understand you're trying to force to get more length, but I, I would say in the short term, it's going to, it's really going to lead to some, some ugliness. So you could end up having a walk-off situation in, you know, a mercy rule type, type setting. I just, I don't like it when, when we're, we're in a space where it's, it's kind of this non-competitive thing where guys are just, you know, flipping the ball in there and everybody's sort of smiling. Here's the other thing too, is that the, the position players are up there. They don't want to throw their at-bats away. It's an opportunity for them to get a hit. Every single thing is getting measured. That's one of the things in all of this <clears throat> that's changed is that everything is evaluated that that's the difference between now and 30 years ago. And you think it's the same, but it's not, you, you think that a 10, one game is the same, but it is not, it's not even close because 30 years ago, the umpires weren't being evaluated this way. And so the strike zone started to balloon. The game moved. Everybody was in on it. That was on the field, the offense and the defense, they understood what was happening, but now a 10, one game is being, basically executed in the same way as a 10-9 game or a 2-1 game. It's 2-0. There's a hitter up there. He's a good hitter. And a position player flips one in that's this far off the plate that the umpire calls a strike. And the guy at the plate gets pissed off in a 10-1 game. But it's because they know they're being evaluated on every single pitch. The players are they they are connected on what they're being evaluated on. And so Nobody throws it bad. So not, I'm gonna, I should, maybe I shouldn't say nobody. 
guys don't throw at bats away the way they used to. They don't. I mean, like whatever old school stuff you want to say in blowout games, guys would throw at bats away. They don't throw at bats away now. And so on the one hand, they're all trying to sort of get their numbers. But in the end, if you have a guy throwing 65 miles an hour, it, it just it ceases to be the thing that we came there to watch. Taylor, I often bring you in to be the voice of the fan. What would you think about a mercy rule after, say, seven innings, Book said, if the difference in score was about seven runs? Oh, yeah. All in on that. I mean, this is the, the novelty is worn off. Everyone's over it, I, I think, except for maybe the people like Boog said, the people in the stands who have come for the one night and haven't seen this before. But yeah, it's let, let's move things along. These games are already long enough. Yeah, there's probably not a coincidence, Boog, where you mentioned, you know, after the seventh inning in a blowout situation, that's usually when they stop selling beer as well. So what are you doing there? Right. <laughs> Time to go home. Uh, yeah, fair enough. Uh, because you know the personality, here's my nomination for one of the quotes of the year. Max Scherzer uh, started last night in A for Binghamton. And after that game, he told reporters, I want to be in the big leagues, not a rumble pony. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's awesome. Um, I, gosh. Smart, interesting, and also really, really honest. That's the thing always with Max, right? I mean, I I will tell you, could if could you imagine if you could have only shared two pieces of information with Met fans on June 22nd, that Max Scherzer would have started, what do you start, five games? Right. That Max Scherzer would have started that much and DeGrom hadn't pitched and the Mets would be in first place. Like if you only shared that Scherzer and DeGrom had pitched that much, and then you asked them, what would the standings look like? And, you know, Met fans would be jumping off the Brooklyn bridge and, uh, and things have gone pretty well. I I'm interested to see if he can be healthy and DeGrom coming back, you know, I, I was part of, uh, the broadcast team in the 03 Marlins. And one of these subtleties about that year was you think of the storyline of Josh Beckett and that he pitched so well, but Josh had blister problems that year. And so he was on the shelf. So by the time, but the point is when he got to the LCS, he was way more fresh than everybody else. And I can't help but wonder with these two guys, if there isn't a chance that both Scherzer and DeGrom are going to be closer to peak level at, I mean, this is way down the line, closer to peak level to postseason, And maybe this whole thing could put them in a pretty good space. Yeah. A blessing in disguise. I wouldn't be surprised if Scherzer's next start is in the big leagues. Uh, as you know, it's usually a progression about 15 to 20 pitches per start. So he'll be at about 80 pitches next time. And you know, if Scherzer tells the Mets, Hey, I think I'm ready for the big leagues. They're going to listen to him, especially yeah. at $43 million a year. Um, and with the Grom, everything you hear, you know, he's making progress. He's throwing to hitters. Uh, you're right. If you have those two guys healthy down the stretch, you're in a good spot. That's what the Dodgers have been trying to do over the last six, seven years with Clayton Kershaw yeah. to put him in a position, uh, you know, to, to be there in the postseason. I got two more for you. you got about four minutes left. I wrote a piece for ESPN.com today about, Okay, if not the Yankees with Aaron Judge for uh, when he becomes a free agent in the fall, and I don't think there's any doubt that's going to happen. There's no sign that they're going to work out even the arbitration case, let alone a, a long-term deal. If he becomes a free agent, what teams could be interested? And you know, I got a lot of great feedback from around the sport. For you, what's a team to watch? So the first place that my head goes is the Giants, just because of where 
where he grew up. I think that they, they still, I, I have two teams in my head and, and it's two different ways. I think that, that, that would be a big deal and he would get a chance, you know, effectively to, to go back home and play for, you know, one of the trademark franchises in the sport. But I would say that with Farhan and Zaidi and uh, Scott Harris there, they will be clinical in the way they deliver a contract offer. They're going to say it's worth it at this amount. It's not worth it at this amount. And there will be a limit full stop team I think about is the New York Mets. And I don't think that's the way that Steve Cohen. I mean, I think that there's a part of Steve Cohen that at night, he probably sits there giggling to himself, thinking about throwing all that money at Aaron judge and signing. I mean, could you imagine could, I mean, seriously, could you imagine them giving Aaron judge this monstrous contract and he's playing right field for the New York Mets? That would be Oh my gosh, that would be amazing. Uh, a couple follow-up thoughts. Uh, folks around the sport I talked to cited exactly the dynamic that you mentioned when it came to the Giants with the front office, with the way that it thinks, step out to a contract that big. Let's face it, if the Giants get involved and they sign Aaron Judge, it's going to be because ownership comes in and said, you know what? We want a signature guy. We want our, our new Barry Bonds. Uh, they have extraordinary payroll flexibility. The only contract they have after 2023 is Anthony DiScofani at $12 million in 2024. So they could do it. I'm with you. I have my doubts about whether or not they would. I also have my doubts about whether or not the Mets would, but someone who knows Colin told me, you know what, if they get close to winning the world series and they don't, you don't rule anything out. Like if they feel like judge is the best guy and here's the sort of diabolicals too strong of a word, The diabolical part for Steve is that even if he determines in his mind, you know what, I don't know if I really want to pay judge, but I want to push the guys on the other side. You're setting yourself up potentially, Boog, to be in a good spot when Juan Soto comes down the pike because you potentially could force the Yankees to spend uncomfortable money to keep their signature guy. Does that make sense? Absolutely. No, there's no there's no question that it makes sense. So, I I mean, just the the way it plays out and obviously the, you know, the rivalry, those two teams back page, I think, you know, I wonder nationally if people, you know, recognize that, you know, look in the, in the eighties, that was, it was a Mets town. I mean, so it's, I'm not suggesting that that's what will happen or necessarily can happen again, but I, I do feel confident it could get close again if the Mets were to win the world series or, you know, come close, sign Aaron Judge. I mean, that, that would be, you talk about back page bananas. I can't even, I, like, I just, I already wanted, if, if Judge were to go to the Mets, I would already want to sit down and think about my New York Post and Daily News headlines. <laughs> and, and there have been stretches where, as you mentioned, the Mets have owned the town, the Yankees have owned the town. We've never really seen a situation where there have been superpowers and they've yes. gone after the same guy. Like, that hasn't no. really happened in their That's history. That's right. And it would be fun to see if that happened with Judge. 45 seconds on this. I thought one of the most important things that happened to baseball last night, Jack Flaherty, three innings, five walks, one strikeout for the Cardinals. I look at the Cardinals being a a dangerous team with those core of young players, but they need an elite starting pitcher, and we'll see if Jack Flaherty can be that guy. 
I think, I don't know. I mean, the Cardinals are good. I don't know that I think that they're really dangerous. I just think the Brewers are very vulnerable right now would be my thought. That's that's my more my take on it. Just with all those injuries, the Brewers are vulnerable right now. Okay, Boo. Uh, look, we talked for 25 minutes and it felt like we talked for 10 seconds, which is the way that it used to be in the airport, at least to me. I know you were always running away from me early in no, the morning. I was not. I was not running away from you. Just stop it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it was great. Great to connect, pal. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, the clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Todd Radom is the chief executive of our weekly quiz. He's a graphic artist whose work can be seen on ball fields all across America, all around the world. Or you can go to his website, ToddRadom.com. And Todd, I, I followed you on social media. All kinds of pictures coming out of Toronto. Yeah, Buster. I, I was in Toronto for the weekend. Quite an arduous journey up there, but uh, made it back unscathed. And a couple of cool things. Went to a Blue Jays game on Friday night with my friend Chris Creamer, my co-author of uh, the book Fabric of the Game. A fine gift for anyone. But anyway, we went with uh, a man named Richard Walker. Uh, and his wife, Richard Walker, is responsible for the original Toronto Blue Jays logo from 1977, which has captivated me since the moment I saw it. So what a cool treat to be able to go to a Jays game with him and uh, celebrate his good work. Did you, uh, just out of curiosity, did, uh, did you have a conversation with him about the uh, the Maple Leaf uh, yes. when you were sitting with him? Very much so. And I've spoken to him before, but we never actually met until uh, the other night. But a couple of things, Buster. Uh, One of his first jobs out of college, he was working at an advertising agency in Montreal in the late 60s that was developing what became the Montreal Expos logo. And while he did not Uh, He wasn't directly involved with that. He remembered a Maple Leaf being featured in there, and they said, nah. But as it relates to the Blue Jays, if you remember during what I call the Roger Clemens era, his original Blue Jays logo was revamped, and there was a giant red Maple Leaf that was stuck behind the Blue Jay head. So it was a real uh, reversed emphasis on the leaf and on the color red. And this is what he said to me. He said, I didn't particularly like it. We're Canadians. We're very, uh, very humble people. We don't like to brag. And that was kind of braggadocious. 
Yeah. And, and I, as you said, you know, he Canadians, humble people, I bet you his feelings internally were stronger than that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was just the way he conveyed it, but no, he actually did the use of those, that, that word, if I'm recalling correctly, there, there were no epithets involved, but, uh, but it was great. It was retro night uh, at the ballpark. They gave out a sweatshirt with his original logo on it. Wow. So to see his work embraced by, 50,000 people. The Yankees were in town. They put a hurting on the home team, but uh, we felt good at least because uh, his, his good work was uh, appreciated by tens of thousands of people, including myself. Yeah. You can't mess with perfection. All right. Let's get to this week's Phantom franchise. So Buster, the Washington nationals, of course, defeated the Houston Astros in a seven game 2019 world series, but almost a quarter century prior the Astros seriously contemplated a move to the Washington area. Let's go back to 1995 when baseball was still emerging from the work stoppage that laid waste to the previous year's scheduled fall classic. The Houston Astros home attendance had dipped from a hair over 2 million in 1993 to just 1.3 million two years later. And owner Drayton McLean said that the franchise had lost $65 million in three years. Meanwhile, a Northern Virginia group led by telecommunications executive William L. Collins was seeking a team. The region was one of four finalists for two expansion slots in 1995, but those went to Phoenix and Tampa Bay, today's Diamondbacks and Rays. McLean and Collins initiated discussions about a sale of the Astros during the 1995 All-Star break in Texas, and a $150 million deal was reportedly reached which would have seen the Astros play two or three seasons at RFK Stadium beginning in 1996, while a 45,000-seat ballpark was built near Dulles Airport in Northern Virginia. The team, Buster, was to have been called the Virginia Fury. Collins footed the bill for engineering work that would have made RFK baseball ready. An agreement in principle has been made, said George L. Barton IV, chairman of the Virginia Baseball Stadium Authority. There has been a handshake, but regardless of handshakes, MLB owners would have had to approve the agreement. And we say this every week, this proved to be the undoing. One high ranking MLB official told the Houston Chronicle, and I quote, it isn't going to happen. The timing on this is terrible. We are not going to move a team out of the fourth largest city in the country when we are trying to overcome so many other problems. In mid-November, McLean announced that the Astros would be staying put in 1996. The following September, McLean and the Astros signed an agreement for a $265 million retractable roof ballpark that would keep the franchise where it is to this day in Houston. The District of Columbia, of course, got its team in 2005 when the Montreal Expos moved to Washington. But today we remember the Virginia Fury, who are this week's phantom franchise. All right. So I don't remember all the details. I didn't, as I was uh, listening to you talk about this, I did not remember all the details of this, but I must say, you know, having gotten to know Drayton McLean a little bit as an owner, I, if I had known uh, then what I, what I know now about Drayton, uh, I would have been laughing the whole time saying, nope, total leverage play. Cause there, you know, we talked about Bud Sealing and what a big baseball fan he was. Drayton McLean was along the same lines. Like he liked players. He liked being the owner of the Astros. He had fun being the owner of the Astros. 
I remember, uh, you know, when they got to the World Series and Roy Oswald had a, you know, that had that uh, that great appearance against the Cardinals in the playoffs to to uh, end that series. The reward from Drake McLean to Roy Oswald was a bulldozer. <laughs> I remember that, and I remember you writing about that. Yeah, and he has this like this special character, and, and so this to me was a classic leverage play. Yes. Yeah, I would agree. And, you know, it's been a while, but the Washington area, including Northern Virginia, was considered the hot territory. And let's all remember when the Expos finally did move to Washington in 2004 slash 2005, this was the first MLB team move since the Senators moved out of Washington in 1971. So it had been a long time. And listen, Nationals Park in Washington, beautiful ballpark on the river there, great location. Uh, maybe that region dodged a bullet by not putting a ballpark up near Dulles Airport. Yeah, 100%. All right, let's get to this week's quiz. All right, here we go. I have, as we just said, returned from Toronto. I saw a game at Rogers Center, originally called Skydome. So here is this week's question. Which of these four names was not a finalist for what was eventually called Skydome. Was it A, the Toronto Dome? Was it B, the Dome? C, Tower Dome? Or D, Harbor Dome? They had a contest to name what became Skydome. Which one of these was not a finalist? Toronto Dome, the Dome, Tower Dome, or Harbor Dome? Wow. Uh, that's a great question. I, I have no clue about the answer. I'm going to guess in terms of what, what I'm thinking about, how uh, folks think about names. Taylor, you want to go first? Or you want me to go? I'll go first. I will go. I'm between the dome and the harbor dome. I will go with D, the harbor dome. Oh, the harbor. Well, boy, um, I think that harbor dome definitely was among the possibilities. I'm going to say the dome. Todd, what do you got? You are both incorrect because Phew. the wrong thing would be the Toronto Dome. The, really? the finalists were the Dome, which would have been pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Tower Dome, Harbor Dome, and the winner, Sky Dome. And because people hate things like this, they hate all new things. They are snarky. I found a newspaper clipping from the uh, original, uh, from when this was named. And let's just say that some of the, some of the there were some scathing comments about the eventual name. <laughs> yeah you're right uh, including by players dave steve equally upset told the winner would get two passes for life for every event at the facility quote they should ban the guy for life for coming up with that brainstorm <laughs> That's oh. great. well you know dave steve he was not one to hold back on his commentary <laughs> no no but uh, but he, you know, it's, it's Rogers center. And anyway, we hold serve and we wait for Sarah next week, I guess. That, that sounds good. All right, Todd. Thanks for doing this. All right, guys. Thanks. Bleacher tweets. All right, Buster Bleacher tweets for a Wednesday. T Jones at TNJ six, two, nine writes in. Why are the Astros such jerks? Why couldn't they do it? How about just making a fan? You want something from happy? Yeah, he got it anyway, but that was a really good. That was a really bad look by the team. Of course, he is referencing uh, Ryland Freeman and his negotiation for the home run ball the (laughs) other night. 
I, I I don't think they looked bad. I don't think they're jerks, but I think they should have just given him whatever he wanted rather than having to negotiate. What do you think? Well, I'd say this, uh, you know, the folks who were doing the negotiating originally probably were like second lieutenants in their army. Mm-hmm. And they're not necessarily they don't have the authority to say, yes, I'll get you a Justin Verlander signed jersey. Right. Um, and so I just think it was one of those outlier situations that that uh, just happened the way that it did. And, and then, uh, you know, after the Astros uh, became aware of what he was looking for, they immediately stepped up. Um, you know, I know some people have said on social media that, hey, that was only because we uh, interviewed him on national television. He spelled out his, his uh, request. I'm not going to blame the people who did the original negotiation. They don't have the authority to say, yeah, hey, Justin, here's a jersey. Sign it. Right. Just uh, some low level. Oh, yeah. Blame the rank and file folks working at the the ballpark. I agree. I I do. I I, was it. Um. Who was it on the broad? I think it was Carl or or Eduardo. Yeah, they were Eduardo. like, oh, whoever gave up the he when he gave up the ball, Eduardo was like, no, no, bad move, which I sort of agree with. But yeah, I mean, they're they're just calm PR flack like, they, you know, they they've got a job to do. And uh, I mean, the, the Astros, they worked it out and they gave him what he wanted and yep. everyone's happy. So Tip of the cap. Yeah, absolutely. In the end, they really made the, the kids day, which was awesome. And then, as I said the other day, the kid was great. For sure. Gnome at Gnome 89 writes, and at what point do we start pointing the finger at strength in training staffs regarding all these injuries? I don't think my White Sox have fielded a lineup yet with all their top guys at the same time. Where do you stand on this sort of thing? Blaming the training staff for injuries? Well, in some cases, I think it's appropriate. Most of the time, I think that's something I want to veer around. I will tell you, you know, I had a conversation with a general manager that really stuck with me about five years ago. And I said, you know, how, uh, how are you looking at your team? And I was referring to like the pitching, the offense, the standard parts of the team. He goes, you know what? I really believe in our medical. And I was like, wow. And we've mm-hmm. seen the Yankees, right? They made changes a couple of years ago with all their medical, uh, their conditioning. And guess what? This year, what's one of the strengths of the teams? They haven't had as many injuries. That's a great point. So uh, I, you know, where can, where do you draw the line on, on the specific importance? I, I don't know if you can. Tony Melton at tech coach, Tony writes in last night, Clay Holmes was pitching in the bottom of the eighth. When the Rays tied at the Yankees scored twice in the top of the ninth. So why did Peralta get the win? Yeah, Tony, I wasn't aware of that. It's a great question. I followed up. I've sent out emails. I haven't gotten responses yet this morning. Uh, but I, I, I thought initially after reading your description, well, that just must be an error in the box score. Like that just must be a mistake. But I went to baseball reference a few minutes ago and you're exactly right. Like Peralta got credit for the win and I don't understand why. So uh, I'm going to report back on Friday on what I learned. We'll make a note. John Tolender at John Tolender writes, and after listening to Thursday or Thursday's pod while discussing the twins being dropped from the league years ago, it made me wonder what happens to players in that situation. Do they all become free agents? Yeah, I don't know because they didn't get far enough along in that conversation contract, which I really think was a leverage play with the player association. I don't think they were ever serious. Uh, anything that they would do, they would have to go through the players association. So I don't believe it would have been a case where there would have been a draft of all the, the twins players by other teams. I think a lot of guys would have been made free agents. 
Last one for today. Nancy Pred at NG Pred wrote this. Uh, she sent this in on Tuesday afternoon, I believe. Um, before the Guardians beat the Twins in extras last night, she wrote, Guardians won 15 of the last 19, including six straight series, the last of last of which versus the Dodgers. As of yesterday, they were one game out of first and four ahead of the White Sox. Still no mention on the pod. Come on, guys. We gave them some love at the top of the pod, Nancy. Yeah, today we did for sure, right? Uh, and I think going forward, it was, you know, last week we talked about Jose Ramirez, right? Mm-hmm, We've been yeah. talking about what a good player is. So I don't think we've left them completely off, but I will also tell you that it surprised me that Cleveland has caught the twins at the top of the American League Central. That division now is wide open. Yeah, it seems uh, kind of rocky for them to start the season. So glad they're back in the mix and we'll be talking more about them as they uh, continue to charge in the AL Central. That is it for Bleacher Tweets. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter while you're watching games. And uh, if you haven't yet gone back to watch Buster's segment with Tim on YouTube, you should check that out on the ESPN YouTube page. That's it for today. My thanks to Boo, Todd, Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. Dogs are an important part of our lives. That means protecting them from parasites. Ask your vet about NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus Chews provides one-and-done monthly protection against fleas, ticks, heartworm disease, roundworms, and hookworms. Plus, they're delicious and easy to give. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. Ask about NextGuard Plus Chews.